0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 157, recorded on October 3rd, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And we start this week with our own October surprise. It seems some open source developers are not really enjoying DigitalOcean's Hacktoberfest this year, and they claim they're drowning in spam pull requests. Now, full disclosure DigitalOcean does sponsor one of my shows, but
1: I do think this is a little bit unfair on them a lot of people have been pretty hostile to DigitalOcean about this and i do think that the whole hacktoberfest thing is them trying to do good for the community and obviously promote their business at the same time i think it's just sort of naivety rather than malice that's caused this problem
0: this has been going on for a while this is the seventh hacktoberfest it originally launched in 2014 And the setup works is you get a certain kind of pull request in and a certain kind of window of time, and you get swag. This year, things are a little different. First of all, I suppose you have more people at home, so there's maybe more people that are participating, I guess. But the other thing that's that's certain is DigitalOcean limited the amount of shirts that would be issued to something like 70,000 or 40,000. I mean, just some incredible number. But it meant there was a limited amount you could get, so you better get on it. I think it's important to kind of keep the numbers in perspective here. What we're talking about is some projects that are getting spam pull requests in the range of a dozen or so, and in the worst case, maybe a dozen or so a day. When the register looked into it, they saw that there was currently 1,136 pull requests that seemed to be related to the Hacktoberfest. That was as of October 1st. So it's not a tsunami, as some are calling it, but it's enough. And when you consider that each one of those then sends off generally a notification email to everyone who's watching the repository, and then each one of them might come to check on the status of it, it does actually add up very quickly into lost time. And this is something that I've not really figured out how to talk about because I think this is a really common problem in free software is really well-intentioned people that have reach attempt to do something good and help projects, but what they really do is kind of DDoS the project. And DigitalOcean didn't name names, but they said an online influencer kind of put a little extra attention on this this year, one individual in particular, and they think that kind of snowballed and created a lot of momentum. And they were all well-intentioned, but it creates extra work for these projects. And I think it's easy to accidentally generate a lot of work for these maintainers.
1: Yeah, and this is not the only instance of this that we've seen. We've seen other people with reach do that very same thing. They have good intentions, they are a little naive about it, and they put out there into the community that these open source projects need help via pull requests or bug reports. But those bug reports and pull requests have to be of good quality, otherwise they are worse than not having them in the first place, as we're seeing here with what's being marked as spam.
0: And the projects need the personnel and staffing to actually address the problems. And generally, there's already a long list of problems. It's more about actually getting the work done. But that's a complicated problem. We could probably do an entire show. the important takeaway from this is after kind of initial – not really understanding seeming response from DigitalOcean. They now have made good, and they've made this a, you have to opt in to participate, so you have to add their Hacktoberfest metadata to your repository to make it clear that you want to participate. And so instead of it being opt-out, it is now opt-in. And so they'll probably end up with a warehouse full of T-shirts then. Better get back to in-person events so they can do something with those shirts. (laughs) Yeah. There's also a tool out there that GitHub has released to help you clean some of this stuff up. If this has been an issue for you, we'll have some resources in the show notes to help you out. Yeah, and I think ultimately this does show that DigitalOcean do listen to
1: the community. It took them a few days to sort this out, but it seems to be a solution that most people are happy with now.
0: I think it's worth noting maybe more people know how to do this now. And getting more people involved and just being aware that these are open source projects that you can contribute to and this is how you submit PRs and this is, this is how you interface that has to have some value. I don't know if it equals the cost of the time of these, the very limited time of these developers, but I hope there is some long-term benefit of the network effect of DigitalOcean's Hacktoberfest bringing people into the ecosystem and teaching them some of the basics. And it's a good motivator. Free stuff, turns out, motivates people to learn. Yeah, and if nothing else, hopefully this has put a spotlight
1: on the quality of pull requests. And just changing a few commas in a readme is not actually very useful. And now people will hopefully realize that,
0: people who are new to this community. Well, Google made news this week with a brand new Chromecast that now comes with something called Google TV, which is not Google TV as you knew it, but is now better summarized as an experience that runs on an upgraded Chromecast device. Yeah, this came out of the Pixel 5 online event this week.
1: Now, I don't own a TV, so this is all just alien to me. It's very confusing. Even having read about it, it's still a little confusing to me exactly what is Google TV, what's Android TV, and how it all fits together.
0: Yeah, and as somebody who loves his NVIDIA Shield, I was concerned what this meant for the future, but I, I think I have it figured out. This is maybe not a fair, fair comparison, but think of Google TV as a launcher that will now sit on top of the Android TV operating system. This is a new experience that uses Android TV underneath. The Google TV project as it was, the thing that was featured on the Nexus player and whatnot, is no longer. But they've taken some of the ideas from the UI experience and brought them forward. It's now much more tightly integrated with Google Assistant and much more tightly integrated with their streaming partners. Apple TV Plus aside, and it puts all of that content front and center along with YouTube TV Live. It's now just a tab on there. And it's like this souped up interface that now comes shipped on a 50 ish $60 Chromecast. Alex from the self-hosted podcast already has one, and he's, he's already experimenting with it. So I think on an upcoming episode soon, we'll get his review. Wow, I look forward
1: to that. But it's interesting that it doesn't support Stadia at launch. That is coming soon, early next year probably. What does that tell you about
0: Stadia as a priority for Google? It can't be very high for them. I think what it really betrays is how they fail internally to support each other and how isolated these different projects are. I would bet you a cider that Google TV as an experience was its own siloed project completely separate off and doing its own thing that has now come along, and they just never interfaced properly with the Stadia team, and so they have this embarrassing missing feature that any other provider would never ship a platform like this and not put their absolute latest and greatest streaming services front and center. It's laughable when you actually break it down like that, but it just seems to be... Google's failure to function internally and maybe why they don't properly support these products at the end of the day. And I'm not very thrilled so far with the early implementation. It seems from what I've gathered from Alex and the audience that Plex, Ambi, Kodi, they don't get to participate in this new Google TV UI. They're now just apps that you have to go into and their data is an island onto themselves, siloed off inside somewhere in the UI. But Hulu Plus and Disney Plus, of course, that's all front and centered. And of course, YouTube TV, that's integrated throughout. And so these streaming partners and these services that I really don't want to buy all of them, so I'm not going to use them all, are now just front and center. And my apps that I want to get to the actual library that I've now invested almost a decade into, well, that's buried one, two, three, four, five tabs down now and inside siloed off, not integrated with the rest of the experience. And I I don't think it's clear today what Google has planned to address that, if Plex and MB and Kodi can update and take advantage of the UI, or if they have to be a streaming partner and they'll never be part of it. It's not clear right now. But there is some good news
1: regarding Google TV, and that is that the recent WireGuard update supports it and is very easy to use by the sounds of things if you want to hop on your VPN to pretend that you're in a different country for Netflix or whatever.
0: This is so cool to have something like WireGuard that is not only making the Android TV app, which I am super grateful for, but it seems like they're also going out of their way to to try to make it the best experience on a stock unrooted device or on a fully rooted device. They they seem to make accommodations for either and give you the best experience. And that's awesome to see the developers going out of their way to accommodate that. And having this integrated at the TV level... That's so awesome because you could take something like the shield with you. They have a, like a more portable little tube version. Now you could take something like that with you to a hotel, plug it into the hotel television when that becomes a thing again, or like you said, for region hopping or for a guy like me who has a lot of stuff archived at the studio, I could just VPN into the studio, get access to all the stuff stored on there without having to open up any ports to the internet, you know, keeping it all private and secure. The only other thing now I need to really make life complete would be a really simple way to download YouTube videos and store them on the Android TV so I could watch them offline. You combine all this together and it's nearly the perfect set-top box. Does NewPipe not work with Android TV? I don't know. I've never tried NewPipe on the uh, on the old Android TV. I'll definitely will give it a go. I was hoping one day to find something that was a Kodi plugin, because that'd be the perfect thing: is a, a Kodi YouTube browser that downloads the YouTube videos and then adds them to the library for watching. That just seems like utopia. But I guess just Crazy Chris wants that. I'll definitely will try out NewPipe though. If you do, I
1: recommend getting it from GitHub rather than Fdroid. Uh, it depends who I'm recommending it to. If people aren't going to manually update it, then get it from F-Droid and you'll get notifications. But someone like you who's going to be on it, I'd say get it from GitHub so you can get the absolute newest version.
0: Oh, yeah. You know that API. It's always changing. Yep.
1: On the phone side of Android, we've had a clarification from Google this week about their in-app payment policy.
0: They take a lot of this blog post to essentially boil it down to one point they make in here, which is, quote, we want to be sure our policies are clear and up-to-date so they can be applied consistently and fairly to all developers. And so we have clarified the language in our payments policy to be more explicit that all developers selling digital goods in their apps are required to use Google Play's billing system. In other words, if you are doing in-app purchases They're going to get their 30% cut. This essentially brings them more in line with the Apple App Store policy. But I think Google, trying to project an image that's a little softer than what Apple does, is offering an olive branch to developers, in a sense, giving them a one-year grace period for developers to comply with the policy. This is clearly all about Epic and Fortnite, isn't it?
1: This is their reaction to that whole case and trying to kind of weasel out of it. Because they also say, hey, look, you can have your apps on other app stores and a bunch of phones, most phones, in fact, ship with at least two app stores on them already. And there's nothing stopping you putting your app in there. And you can advertise deals elsewhere, like via email or whatever, but just not via the Play Store.
0: It's it's them trying to say that it's all far more open than Apple. It's an interesting position they're taking because it will strengthen Apple's fight. It'll, it's it. This is a win for Apple because Google's essentially aligning themselves with Apple's policy, which I think maybe the idea there is to strengthen Apple's position in their fight with Epic because Google is facing the same fight. And so they're making this move, and they're doing it in a way that's gentler than how Apple does it. I love also in this, just another kind of clever strategy of theirs, is they're playing into fragmentation now. They're using fragmentation as a benefit, saying, well, look— Most of our phones ship with two app stores already. Isn't that great? (laughs) Which is horrible, right? And it's, it's a mess, and it probably means tons of crazy spam push notifications and probably means that unknown sources are checked by default and all kinds of junk. But they're able to now leverage that as an advantage in this particular argument while also simultaneously strengthening Apple's fight against Epic and thus their own, which is also pending. It's funny that just this very morning, my wife said to me, what's
1: MadGisk Manager? And why does it want to update? And I said, oh, yeah, that's how we get root and for the ad block thing. And she said, okay, so it wants me to give it permission. So, okay, I've done that. Is that it? And I said, oh, no, now you have to press back and then install it. She's like, what? That's just horrible. Horrible user experience. And that is the complaint that the likes of Epic are throwing at Google. That yes, technically, you can sideload APKs, which is essentially what we're talking about with other app stores. But it's not as smooth as the Play Store. You can't have silent automatic updates. You're always going to get a prompt and it's always going to say things that sound a little bit like you probably shouldn't be doing this and you're kind of taking risks. And so I'm not really buying it that it is a level playing field for all app stores, because it just isn't. And Google are now saying that in Android 12, which will be coming next year, they're going to make it easier to install applications from third-party app stores
0: while also being secure. I don't know how they'll make that happen, but that's what they're saying. Well, and going to your point about not buying what they're selling here, I kind of have that issue too, surprise, surprise. I feel almost like they're patronizing developers in a sense. The post where they announce that you're going to pay your cut is titled, quote, listening to developer feedback to improve Google Play, which is a bunch of news speak if I've ever seen any. But then there's this actual section that they have completely like it's its own paragraph with its own title called Equal Treatment. And it reads, our policies apply equally to all apps distributed on Google Play, including Google's own apps. Well, that's also a bunch of horseshit that's not believable at all they first of all don't have to pay in-app penalty because they are google it's 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 not it's not any kind of equal playing ground they're often automatically updated and shipped through the play store they ship on the device to 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 claim that google's own apps are held to the same standards and go and follow the same promotional guidelines and follow the same in-app purchases is just obviously disingenuous on its face this whole thing feels disingenuous to me. It feels
1: like Google just trying to set themselves up for this legal battle against Epic. They're just trying to lay the groundwork to say, hey, look, no, we're totally open and we're giving developers a chance. So don't sue us, sue Apple. I don't agree with you that they're aligning with Apple. I think they're trying to distance themselves from Apple. A lot of the language here is very much saying that we're open and stuff. So... I think they're just trying to throw Apple under the bus.
0: I think you're buying what they're selling. Google always, always drapes it in this language. But when you look at the functional result of what's actually being done here, they're essentially just implementing, they're taking Apple's App Store policy and now it's just the industry standard. They're just implementing the same stuff. Yeah, but officially they were implementing that before. They were
1: quite lax on it. And it was only when there was a big player like Epic that they went after them and kicked them out of the store. But ultimately, that was the policy before. Now they've just tightened it up a little bit.
0: Right, although if they wanted to distance themselves, they could have come out today and said, we've partnered with Stripe, and now Stripe will be available as an in-app payment option to Android developers, and you can take, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll keep 90% of the revenue. We now have new options for Android developers because Google supports open payment systems. Well, yeah, but
1: they obviously wouldn't do that because then they're going to miss out on a bunch of money. That 30% is a a lot of money. There's not that many developers and that many apps charging, but I think the ones that are charging money are charging a lot in aggregate with all their users.
0: Well, and here's the beauty now, is both Google's lawyers and Apple's lawyers can point to each other and say, um, look, we both had terms of service. Epic agreed to those terms of services. Then they broke them intentionally. Both of our app stores are aligned on this issue. This is is a standard problem, and Epic knew it going in for both of them. He's doing it, we're doing it, Epic's the one in the wrong. I mean, either way, this is a loss for Epic, and probably a loss for end users that were hoping on Epic making this crack on the iOS platform that may force sideloading or some other unbelievable result. I think those hopes have all pretty much been crushed by this alignment of policies. I disagree. Maybe I'm buying what Google's selling here, but I do see this distinction.
1: I think that they're saying, yes, that is the policy in the Play Store, but you have alternatives. And I think ultimately, we may see Apple being forced to allow sideloading. I think it would probably not be a great thing in terms of security if they did that. But I think that we could see that on the iPhone. I don't think anything will change on Android, because you can already sideload, in theory, if you jump through a few hoops.
0: I'll say this, to Google's credit, if Android 12 ships, and they've made good on their promise to make it easier to install apps from third-party stores, and that experience is close to first class, then I'd say that's at least enabling a different app store with its own rules and its own cuts to be competitive. And that's absolutely better than nothing. In fact, if that's actually viable, say the Amazon App Store or whatever could be like a serious contender on Android and and really be good and be well-integrated, then that really is more choice and Google can do whatever it wants with the Play Store.
1: Somehow, I don't think they're going to be quite equal, though, are they, even after these changes in Android 12?
0: Jupiter Broadcasting has sponsor openings in October. We are the largest, longest-running Linux podcast in the world, and now we're independent again. We have an opportunity for the right sponsor to reach the perfect audience. They're technical, they're informed, and they want to get things done. And more than ever, there's an opportunity to invest in a proven performer and get your product or service featured in our shows. From the community to the community, it's a pretty great opportunity to support the content we love and get your business and services featured. Let's make this next evolution of Jupiter Broadcasting even better together. Let's grow together. Email me, chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com. If you're interested in sponsoring, it's chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com. As predicted, and to no one's surprise, Google's search preference menu has eliminated DuckDuckGo in its latest round.
1: Yeah, this is Google's browser ballot, which was their response to the European Commission ruling that they had a monopoly on search in Android. So if you get a new Android device in Europe, you're going to be faced with this selection menu. I remember at the time when this was first announced, we talked about it, and it didn't seem quite right. There's a sealed bidding process where search engines say how much they're willing to pay per user who selects them. And it's Google making money from something that maybe they oughtn't to be making money from. They
0: had all their excuses at the time, but it never quite sat well with me. Surprise, surprise. The way things have shaked out is DuckDuckGo didn't win, and it seems that it encourages the companies that do win to up their ad spends to then make the money to place bids to win this. And DuckDuckGo isn't really holding anything back. And on their website, they write, Our most recent large sample user testing shows that when a search preference menu is displayed and designed properly, then Google's search mobile market could drop immediately by 20%. So they think Google is intentionally not designing this thing right. And they say DuckDuckGo, despite being the go-to Google alternative that consumers most want to select, will no longer even appear in most countries. As a result, many EU residents buying a new Android device will no longer have an easy way to adopt a private search engine. The central problem with Google's search preference menu is that it is pay-to-play. And only the highest bidders are on the menu. And they say that the long-term problem here is it incentivizes bad behavior. It incentivizes these search engines to do things to up ad revenue that essentially make them less private for consumers. Yeah, and I do have a lot of sympathy for them, but what can they do? They're calling on the European Commission
1: to say, look, you haven't complied properly, which I'm inclined to agree with, but Google has a lot of lawyers and they pay them a lot of money and somehow... I can't see anything changing here. They did just enough to comply, and the European Commission are not known for their speed when it comes to bureaucracy. So even if DuckDuckGo does manage to get them to change anything, it's going to take a long time for it to happen. And in the meantime, DuckDuckGo is just out in the cold, essentially.
0: And at the end of the day, has Google done anything wrong? Perhaps DuckDuckGo just didn't bid enough. And so someone was willing to spend more. Now, Dr. DuckDuckGo says that's bad for the ecosystem, but I think Google could argue that it's fair play because these, this is first-class placement on their operating system.
1: You know, it would have been a lot easier if the world's largest search engine and ad agency didn't make the world's largest operating system. Things might have been a
0: little bit simpler. Well, you said it would never happen, Joe, and I'm getting my Atari VCS, I think, Soon, maybe. Soon, TM. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> so, on the Medium blog for the Atari VCS, they posted some pictures of the Atari VCS being made and in all
0: the boxes getting ready to ship. But people are very skeptical about this. And uh, they are the most cliche fundraiser, we're shipping photos. <laughs> <laughs> you've never seen more pictures of boxes. Uh, I looked into my Indiegogo records. I, it looks like I bought mine on June 3rd, 2018, which I thought it was sooner than that, but that's according to Indiegogo. And my updated delivery date for my Atari VCS collector's edition is currently dun, 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 October 2020. Hang
1: on. That's now. It's October 2020.
0: Yeah, yeah. So... That's recently been updated at indieGogo. It wasn't they didn't say that like three months ago when I logged in and checked it.
1: We should say what this is for people who don't remember it from all those years ago.
0: Right, right. This is a severely outdated game console that will have a custom Atari UI on top of it that will offer services that I'll likely not want to participate in. (laughs) That's what this is. Um, I mean, the idea is neat, right? It's a retro wood-looking Atari-type console that will have a retro-inspired UI that brings together independent games and commercial games. And And has a somewhat compelling AMD platform that runs Ubuntu all under the hood. I mean, talk about checking all my boxes back in 2018. But now in 2020, when the PlayStation 5 has been announced and I have a Switch and I have an NVIDIA Shield, I'm not really in a place where I even want this product anymore. I'm going to give it a full go and a review with an open mind because... I got to be honest, if I could have a Linux box that looks like an awesome Atari console that can run Kodi and Plex and MB, I actually would probably consider taking out my shield for that. So it may be a product I end up using, but it's not what I'm actively looking for right now.
1: Yeah, but it's going to be x86 based, so it's going to use quite a lot of power, probably get quite hot. It's the kind of thing you could do with the Raspberry Pi quite easily. I don't think it's going to be able to do any modern games at all. You're going to be looking at maybe like 10 year plus old games and emulators and stuff which the emulator side of things like your nintendo and sega and stuff you can do all that on a raspberry pi easily for what like even a, a raspberry pi 3 would probably do that no problem so this just seems too expensive for what you're actually going to get they have massively over promised and Well, they haven't even under-delivered yet, have they? (laughs) They haven't delivered anything. And I'll believe it when it happens, but somehow I don't think you're going to be talking about it on Linux Unplugged or this show actually having used it before Christmas. But, you know, I could be wrong.
0: I mean, maybe I'll have it this month. Wouldn't that be something if I come on the show... Uh, sometime in October and I have it I guess we'll find out uh, I agree I think uh, I think the Raspberry Pi probably is pretty locked in for my use in Lady Jupes because of its low power status but there's room for it here we shall see there's room for me to love it Joe but um, it's not really the product I'm looking for today but you know in terms of game compatibility none of that will matter because it'll probably get Stadia support before the new Chromecast does probably yeah Well, we'll keep an eye on it. And of course, let you know, just go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. If you love TechSnap, days of old with Alan Jude or with Jim Salter, check out Two and a Half Admins. They have a new show with Joe. 2.5admins.com. Yeah, guess who the half admin is. (laughs) We'll be back next Monday
1: with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislass.com. And you can find me at JoelRest.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.